Joshi Podcast. I'm Alex Joshi. My guest today is my good friend Yaya. He is a co-worker of mine at my last job. We met early on when I joined uh, last October and quickly became friends. We've gone to several lunches together. He claims he's shy, but he's I've always found him to be quite extroverted. But in any event, the topic he was most interested in talking about was the misconception of Muslims, in part because he himself is a Muslim and is often has a lot of uh, stereotypical views and wrong assumptions that he's had to dispel over the years in talking with people. So the misconception of Islam generally was the topic he wanted to talk about. Let's listen. So, okay, I've got, I've got your recording now. All right, I'm ready when you're up. Well, I'll let, I, I'm, I've decided I, I'm going to let you take the lead since you're the, the expert on your topic of choice here. So, no, no, that, I don't think that works that way. You're the host. You gotta, you gotta take the lead here, buddy. Sorry. Well, okay. The I'll... weight falls upon your shoulders. <laughs> okay, fine. So, so you're Yaya. You're a friend of mine. We're friends from work. And uh, when I told you you could have any topic at all in the world that you wanted to talk about, you had something very specific in mind. So what was that? Uh, misconceptions about Islam. Okay. And what is it about this topic that it, uh, wanted, inspired you to want to talk about it? Well, I, think, I think it's a necessary uh, topic for modern day conversations that inevitably happen, uh, especially, and it, it's a topic for Maybe somebody who wants to have answers but hasn't necessarily made up their mind as to pass judgment upon Muslims. So we have uh, we have people that fall into a few categories when it comes to their reactions to Islam. On one end are those that are... Well, hold on uh, a sec. Hold on a sec. Just provide a little background context. You yourself are a practicing Muslim. That's why we're having this conversation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that... I'm 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 born in the United States. I I've been I've, re- I've grown up in this country. I've gone to school in this country. I I have uh, deeply socialistic beliefs. Uh, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, but I'm not a moderate Muslim. I'm Muslim, and. Um, none of my views are in rejection of certain parts of the Quran. Uh, none of my views or my, my religion is an amendment of what Islam is. However, uh, the way that I'm, I'm regularly approached or the way I see people approach Islam, and especially in the United States, is one that falls within the spectrum of, you know, whether you're, uh, depending on where the, the viewer's background really comes from. So they're either far extreme on the right where not it's not even really a right left thing but there's either the far extreme of um colonial view of viewing islam as the religion of the savages of the east and then there's the the other view which um can be one of toleration and one of acceptance as uh, but so long as we're the moderate kind and not the extreme kind and then obviously there's the other view which is 
let them live. It's just their path of life and has nothing to do with us and it doesn't harm us. So let, and, so let me ask you, um, just so that it's it's so that our conversation is more particular to you, you know, give me some background sure. as to why like what's been your experience when you're like when you're interacting with people, you know, how how yeah. soon how soon does the question of your religion come up? And sort it of, doesn't come up that often. It's uh, it it does in some circles, and obviously, in the conversation has some element of it. Now, I have uh, I have fairly white skin. I look fairly Caucasian, so there's going to be uh, fewer questions. My otherness is limited to my religion and the name that I have, and is less uh, about you know the color of my skin. I think. The same can't be said about women who wear the hijab or uh, people who are slightly darker and are Muslim. I think they have a much harder time. Okay, so 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 it's you know, you would say no, nothing about your your external clothing or appearance in any way sort of sings I, I'm a Muslim such that you're asked about it. So how does it usually come up? Well, it. it Exactly. Well, I mean, that's also part of the problem, right, is everybody assumes that there's a look, there's a Muslim look. I mean, we don't assume that I'll be able to guess who's a Christian based on what they look like. Right. Um, but somehow, uh, being a Muslim is is perpetuated as this as this cultural thing. And it's it's not even just non-Muslims who perpetuate this image, it's even it's Muslims as well. And th- that really kind of goes to this indoctrination, this colonialized indoctrination that has happened um, of of Muslim otherness. So, uh, do you find do you find it difficult to talk about your religion, or is it like uh, is it? I talk about my religion freely, and I you know I've I've grown a pretty thick skin in terms of what people throw at me, but it's not uh, it's not a topic that for me- most people is going to be easy, and in fact. Maybe one day someone will listen to this and as a Muslim, and they might have, uh, they might similarly feel like they're under immense pressure to always justify their religion. Uh, Do you feel that way? I feel for some people, yeah, that the, it 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 seems in the conversation immediately that I have to justify it. They're shocked. They're unhappy. They say, you know, this. You can sense whether literally from their words or. Or, uh, or very specific, or more implied, that they are unhappy that I'm a Muslim. Or as one person, I believe, once, you know, not too long ago, said, you know, I, they, they, they like everything about what I say, other than the fact that I'm a Muslim. Why am I a Muslim? So, what, what do you tell them? I mean, I believe in what I believe in. It, it, see, this is the thing, and, and, and we had some calls and conversations about this before you and I, but, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I think the conversation can become um, meaningless when it goes so deeply into the individual experience because the bigger issue at hand is tackling the general problem of how Islam is presented to Americans and how, and in tackling this this idea that that of the otherness of is, of Muslims and also some of the misconceptions of what Islam is and then the separation of ideology versus religion 
I mean, have you had, what I want to ask you is when you're talking to people, uh, have you had a lot of conversations where you felt like they, the other person was sort of thought you might be judging them because you're Muslim and that's what they, what it's, what's making the conversation awkward or was it something else? It's possible. But again, it goes to what their misconception of Islam is more so. So they think that I, as a Muslim need to have this specific belief and maybe they're trying to justify it. I don't know, but the underlying factor is not one of defensiveness. It's much more of an aggressive stance of, of, um, you know, you're you're an invading force. So, so do in your experience, people sort of see you as, you know, like a, a potential terrorist in training or something, and that's what they're worried about. Like, well, what, I think what, there's there's what, some what you, people. I think, think there are some people. Is? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been to friends' houses where their parents are watching Twenty Four, and their mentality is that oh. All Muslims, or you know, even worse, if you're ethnically Iranian, all Iranians are just terrorist terrorist cells in waiting. They're just training to become terrorists. Um, I think that's part of the that's part of this um, image that is perpetuated, and and you get a sense of it. But it's not always that. I don't think um, it's it's sometimes a disdain of oh, you the lost. Oh, you the person who has, and and really again, it goes back to the background of the person that you're interacting with. If they're coming from very deeply um, xenophobic uh, Christian background, they might view you as oh, you're the the lost that rejected Christ's message. But I think in um, in really kind of beyond that, it goes to. Uh, more of a more of a nationalistic issue. What What do you think plays the biggest part in in misconceptions about Islam? Do, would you say the media or is it like film? No, the biggest misconceptions have a deep root in history, and at first, initially, it goes to really the the Crusades, and then it comes towards colonialism in the in the later years. Um. Really, when when Christianity and Christendom kind of started to grow and Europe started to stretch its arms and legs, there was always there was always the big foe of the East. You know, for as, for the past three thousand years, the big uh, the big conflict was one between Persia and Rome. So whether it was you know whether it was the Byzantines and the Persians or whether it was before the the Greeks and the Persians and the Romans, it was always this East West. A conflict that that kind of played out, uh, and when religion started to have a different impact, because you know up until Christianity really took hold in Rome and, and Constantine, uh, the Romans are mostly Mitraist, and Mitraism comes from Iran, so it's not like so religiously there wasn't as much of that conflict. But once Christianity took hold, then there was a the conflict of the Christians versus um the others the zoroastrians and then later the the muslims so you don't uh, so you don't think it, it so it's for you it, it, in your opinion it, you don't think it has anything to do with sort of the immediate social context or the lack of you know american education about islam you think it has more to do with sort of historical inertia 
Is that what you're I saying? Think historical, I think historical inertia plays the biggest part because the education that, that we speak of, the education a lot of times is deeply flawed. That's very true. But it still plays out. You know, you, you, don't, you don't really care. When you get down to it, you don't care what someone else believes in. One of the reasons why we don't see the same level of conflict happen with people of other religions we don't expect them we don't we don't have the same necessary agitation or anger towards them now it's surprising you know only what five percent of all terrorist activity in the united states has happened by the hands of muslims but we don't view inherently um despite both historical and current context we don't see other religions as necessarily violent so what do you, in fact, there's, what have you had there's to, even a blindness to, to how much some atheists have a sense of blind, uh, the, or you know the violence that that happens there because it's idiotic to make a generalization that you know atheists are inherently violent. It's idiotic to make the same generalization about anybody. Nobody's inherently violent. There's context and there's other aspects to it that that kind of push that. Yeah. But we we're very comfortable. Americans are very comfortable to to put the narrative that Muslims are violent much more comfortable than any other group of people. So what what do you usually ha- what do you usually have to explain to people to like allay their fears for those people that have been that like who meet you and they go, "Oh, you're a Muslim? Oh, gee, I don't, you know, I don't know about that." Like what is it you end up Well, having? most people don't. I mean, now we're we're in a state where most people don't talk about it very openly. Uh-huh. Yeah, some people some people do. And and you deal with it then. And actually, I mean, some of the honest conversations there are, are, are better, but sometimes they don't say that. And in some cases, they don't say it to the point that they just bottle this up, plan it, and then as the case of the the three students in North Carolina, the guy just shows up and kills them. I mean, he doesn't have a conversation with them. He just shows up to their house and murders them. And and so there's that, that the conversations don't necessarily happen anymore. We don't, you know, we... the the racial slurs are not used as much and open anymore. Well, what, what's, what's more uncomfortable for you that people don't ask you about it or that you don't have the opportunity to like explain as much as you would? I think, I mean, I think both of them, both of them put you in an awkward position at the end of the day. It's it. That's one of the reasons why I'm saying that the conversation ultimately has to be one that provides general context because at some point, most people that have some doubt or some question, they seek an answer online or through other mediums. And this could be one of them. And they seek to to know a little bit more about what it means, what is, what is a Muslim, what do they believe, do they believe in X, Y, or Z, and they have these common misconceptions or whatever that they, they, they're looking to either validate or reject. And, and so then they enter into, you know, then, then it's a matter of luck. It's playing roulette. Do they land on a website that is um, with a very specific anti-Muslim agenda? Do they land on a website that is funded by um, zealots yeah. uh, that, that have very... Uh, you know, they could be Muslim zealots or non-Muslim zealots that, that have a very specific 
uh, image of Islam that they want to portray. Have you lost so, like colleagues or friends, like you were friends or colleagues with them, and then they found out you were Muslim, and then they were more distant or something? Like, um, I don't know. I have to think about that. Like in in your in your, I mean, I've I've, I've like I've I've definitely faced issues with teachers and in uh, you know college and high school. Do you do you feel a lot of personal pressure? Like you, you have to speak on behalf of all Muslims. This is yeah, that's par for the course. I think most minorities in the United States feel that you're you're on trial for your people always. Would you Would you rather? I mean, in in your estimation, does 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 the fact that you're Muslim too often get in the way of? of brokering relationships with people like you'd much rather you know be someone's friend uh, without it coming up but that you know once they you know once they find out you're muslim it sort of gets in the way and so you have to ex explain things see this is the thing as as, when, as you get older the more people in the circles that you run into are generally filled with people that don't have the same kind of um they're, they're a little bit more open so you know the the field of work that you and I, you know, in our office, obviously, was conducive to uh, to people that tend tend to be more open to, to immigrant populations. Um, you know, it, after a certain point in life, you're no longer really forced to to think about those things. Now, when I was in high school, yeah, that was in or junior high, uh, that was an issue, um, and some people distinctly didn't want to have any anything to do with you because of it including teachers who uh you know time there was a couple of times where i'm very happy that there were standardized tests or ap tests because my ap tests allowed me to take advantage of uh the course and the studying that i had done versus the grade the final grade that the teacher was going to give me uh, they didn't really reflect my effort so there was um you know, there there were play, there were times when when you face some things because you're you don't have a choice. Now that being said, there is a there is definitely um, there is definitely again a more privileged position, a less privileged position when having that conversation because again, I'm white and you know I dress. Uh, I like to dress nicely. I like to, I, you know, I but more in terms of nicely by the Western standards. Um, and so I don't really come off, and, and visually I don't come off as the other, whereas other people will. And, and I feel like your questions would, would have vastly different answers from someone who wears a hijab or is outwardly uh, more Middle Eastern. Did, did I have any uh, did I have any misconceptions about your religion or did I did I treat you in, in I believe so there was some there were some misconceptions initially we, we've had several conversations I can't remember the details but and I mean I'm, I'm more than willing to always talk about them but um, but I'm, I'm curious like what what sort of you know was that was I well, I can't remember what it's been a year since we, we initially met yeah something like that so I mean, I, I don't keep a I don't keep a running tab of what misconceptions what friends have had that I've had to correct. 
Well, there's some who are, who are more um, organized about it. Like I had a friend's dad who wrote a long list of questions that they had. <laughs> had my friend forward it to me so that I can answer them one by one. Um, I mean, but, did, I, did I ever ask you anything that made you feel uncomfortable? Or did I ever say anything that was like... I never felt... No, I mean, again, I don't feel uncomfortable anymore when, when certain things like that come up. I did when I was younger. Um you know, I felt, oh my God, now I have to have an answer. But once, once you get older and you research for yourself and you find the answers that you need for yourself, then it's a different, it's, it's a very different deal. And then you're like, okay, I've, I've been down this road before. Let's, let's, let's have this conversation. Right. So you, you were saying, you were saying it's, it's in your opinion, you don't think it's that people associate Islam with terrorism. You think there's a much stronger historical inertia that's behind these misconceptions. So go back. Well, to they're going to they're going to they're going to constantly be told to 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 mix it with terrorism, and they're not necessarily going to have the same historical context of it. But the otherness of Muslims and the notion of terrorism is being used by media and other powerful people, including people on the left and right. And that's why I don't want to really say it's a left or right issue. So when Tulsi Gabbard constantly goes on TV and talks about Muslim terrorism or Islamic fanaticism or whatever other words that she uses, she's inciting these other images and she's perpetuating that, that look, and even though she's on the left. And her anti-Islamic xenophobia and, and, and you know horrible rhetoric has had the same impact on some people on the left as some of the the, the words by uh, people on the right. So why why who, can't why can't we say it's just not you know for, since nine eleven it, it's been more heightened this way like the association with Islam no, and terrorism that's, that's, has been since no I, I you think it I've goes been further called, back? I've been called a fucking terrorist since long before nine eleven. I mean. In, in Iowa, when I was in, in junior high in Iowa, there was a group of us kids who were the minorities who would hang out and eat together. And yeah, there were some kids who didn't care, but there was there were some kids who would like find every time I walked down the hall, they would you know find a way to sit, throw a racial slur at me. And like I said, again, I'm very white. My sister, who is light skinned or light haired and has blue eyes. Uh, they used to t- taunt her and say she smelled funny because you know she was, you know, Iranian or Muslim, and um, so they. You, this. So, uh, so if it, if the, it, if it goes further back, like what's what's responsible for the for the, you know, Muslimist terrorist image to begin with, right? Muslimist terrorist image has grown over the course of the past hundred years since the colonial era it wasn't that muslim is a terrorist muslim is muslims are the savages of the east we were the people who stood up and you know fought the christians and many times won and this went under their skin this pissed them off i mean was there a particular fi- particular battle where this became solidified like is there a historical battle or is there no one? i mean think no it's not it's not even about the battle alex Think about it. You need to rile the troops, and it's in the middle of you know the the Middle Ages of of Europe. And you need to get these people to leave their house and leave their family and go and fight all the way across the world on a battle that has almost no significance for them economically. Right. 
but you 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 promise them some riches but they're most likely going to die and you're doing it because you want access to trade routes and you're doing it for spice trade routes and you know yeah there is the context of the of Jerusalem and the holy lands but really like you know there's it's been an economic battle so so what do you do it's, it's you just tell a general them, that would make it just a general war tactic then anytime i want to get someone to go to war if i'm a, if i'm a general then the general war tactic is okay c- characterize the would be enemy as as less than as other as hated as as bestial exactly right so that's but the difference here is these wars dragged on for centuries and these conflicts the conflict between the muslims and the christians and the when the west and the east dragged on for millennia and that is why they they expand so dramatically into into modern into the modern world do do you, do not, you think there's something about islam that makes the the negative characterization characterization distinct from say the you know persecution that Jews have experienced i mean Jews could say christians have been calling them dogs and less than for for thousands of years well, also right is there something unique no, to the no but the the jewish population a has been a, well there's two things that the, at the heart of the jewish christian conflict is the the christians who claim that jews were the reason that christ was crucified so the, the the there's there's another level of context religiously there that is used against the Jews afterwards. Now we have to also think about um, who's the contemporary of whom. So if if the if but, but you know, the Muslims is, is, is there an Islamic parallel? Like is there is there some you know fine if they if if. if if Christians in the Middle Ages would say, "Oh well, he, the Jews killed Christ. That's why we hate Jews," right? Was there was there something around, you know, Islam's initial creation, where people went, "Oh well, this particular thing happened according in Islam, so we hate that." Pati-. Is there a similar historical parallel? See, it wasn't. It, there was nothing in Islam directly that impacted initially in those first you know century that impacted Christians. Maybe Jews would have some gripes because there were some Jewish tribes that came into conflict with Muslims and you know there there would be some historical discussion there with that but the the, the Christians not so much they they were they were a little bit ways away have, have there um, been Jewish and Islamic sort of team ups you know and sort of mutual recognition of of each other's persecution and oppression there have been times in See, here's the thing. The Jewish population is very small. So I think through their history, they found ways of trying to just adapt and fit in and try to survive. And, and they've had, you know, a pretty rough time at times to, to try to find a way to, to carve out a life for themselves. So their, um, their struggle was a little bit different than the Muslims. The Muslims were a much larger force with a much more... Um, you know, militaristic elements uh, in their history. So, so it's a very different conflict that they had. I don't think the Jews ever really came to conquer any Christian lands was, in was the it, same way. Was the population of of early Islam larger than than 
Like how, how many? It grew to be larger. I mean, it grew to be larger. But here's the thing. Let's 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 reverse a little bit because I think, see, if, if again, the the Muslims came in, and they eventually took over the the Levant, and they took over the 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 Holy Lands. When when does Islam start roughly? Islam starts fourteen hundred years ago. Okay, so in 600. Yes. Okay. And what happens is Muslims, so first they take over the Levant and the Holy Lands, and, um, you know, the Crusades happen, they go back and forth, but eventually the land is taken over by the Muslims over the course of centuries. And then there is Constantinople, which was the, the, the center of... Christianity for, for 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 many centuries, and was the center of Orthodox Christianity, and that was taken over by Muslims um, and the Ottomans. And when then you really the Ottomans start to really push into Europe and to to other, and you know obviously there was the the Muslim takeover of Spain. Um, so, and then we have to then we have to kind of go back and say okay. So what is what happens then to the Christians and the the Jews, um, and for the most part, uh, for the most part, the biggest complaint for for part of the, uh, the those periods was not really persecution of oh you're not allowed to practice your religion, but more of double taxation or other kind of administrative um, misgivings and and granted there was there was always. There's always uh, other conflicts that have come up, and so I'm not going to whitewash Islamic history and yeah. some of the things that the Khalifas have done. But at the same time, the Can you? you know the uh, the time of the the time of Islamic golden ages was very different than than other than other places, and it's much more resembling of modern times. I mean, the halls of Baghdad, the scientists and the the researchers and the people that worked in collaboration were people of all religions really there were there were Jews and Christians and and Zoroastrians that were concurrently studying and working and researching together and so it's it's important to note that Islam does not have the same colonial structures that that other um that that happened under other necessarily religious takeovers. Has, has that, this, wait, let me let me ask a question. Also. Let me ask a question if you don't mind. It is uh, has Islam always been a theocracy? See again, again. So this is and and you know this goes back to the like. Do you happen? Do you happen to you know? Said, do you happen to know like what was the unique idea that made Islam popular and distinct from from Judaism and Christianity of the day? Like, well, how are they? How is it? How are they different? Well, those are two very different questions, Alex. Um, I mean, like, in terms what, of the, what was in the... terms of the first question of you know, Islam has not always been a theocracy. And in fact, as a core tenant, theocracy is really not allowed unless the person is an is completely a pure person, such as the prophet. So, uh-huh. no the, theocracy is not technically allowed under most Muslim doctrines, okay. including the Shias. So, you know, Iran is kind of put into question because, you know, it, it, the idea is that if a person who isn't the prophet of the God, of God 
becomes a political leader as well, then they have the potential to really damage people's beliefs, which is exactly what we've seen in any theocracy for that matter. Sure. So, no. Scripturally and, you know, in terms of the um, strictly going by Islamic jurisprudence, by what most people accept, no, theocracy is not allowed under Islam. So what, what under the religion? What's the but, popular the, idea? This is like I'm, so, I'm asking out of curiosity. Like what? What's what was the thing that's causing the spread that everyone said like, "Hey, I really like that." You got to try this new thing called Islam. Like they've they've figured things out that that so far and, the Judaism okay, so, and Christianity so didn't figure so, out. Yeah, it, and and we have to we have to discuss that with. Again, tackling this bigger issue, Islam is not a monolith, it is a religion, and there are people from vastly different cultures that practice it, and thus the way Islam spread is vastly different between cultures. Okay. It's not at all the same story from one culture to the next. So there's lots of colors. Well, it's not just colors. There's just vastly different stories of why people became Muslim, and it's not. Um, and it's. <clears throat> I have to, you know, we have to be very clear that there is definitely cultural elements that impact the way that people will practice a religion, and only eighteen percent of Muslims in the world are Arab. Only, you know, the, the majority of Muslims in the world are either Eastern Asian, uh, Indonesian, Malaysian, Chinese, Indian. Uh, in fact, there are more Indian Muslims than all of the Arab Muslims combined. And there's Turkic Muslims, there's, there's Persian Muslims, and then there's also a whole bunch of other white Muslims, you know, all over the world. And, um, and, Black Muslims, and and so it's an African, various African cultures that have adopted Islam, and so this idea that, okay, what, why did one culture like Islam more than the other? It's really depending on what, you know, what context and what historical context that culture accepted it, and then it goes on a very individual level. The only now, the only reason I ask is because, like, I I, I spoke to another friend of mine, and he uh, he's become a Buddhist priest. And I asked, okay. I asked him, you know, uh, he's he's been raised he's been raised secular his whole life, so it's only it's only in the last few years that he's really embraced Buddhism. And so I asked him, you know, what what was it that that motivated your or inspired you to you know want to choose Buddhism and actually subscribe? And he said, well, I, I liked that there wasn't a god, right? I liked that he liked that it was more of a, in his what he said was it was more a philosophy of how you are with others, right? And it was more uh, analyzing your own uh, position in relation to others. It wasn't necessarily that you were subscribing to a God, right? And certain uh, and certain uh, scriptures and ways of being. It was more... Now, is, is he a Lamaist? Uh, no, he's a... He's, a, uh, he's not a Lamaist, I guess... He's a he's a Zen priest of sorts. I guess he would say he's a Zen priest of sorts. I'm not I'm not sure. So I mean, and and this is this exactly kind of goes in the same context of the questions you're asking. Okay, he found Buddhism in that context, and you know that's wonderful. That's how he's finding his enlightenment. 
um, you know, if I when I read the the speeches and the the conversations with the Dalai Lama, and I read about you know the life of Buddha, and there's wonderful things in there for me to learn from. But then I can also look at the Buddhists in Burma who are wholesale mass murdering and committing genocide against the Rohingya, and there you know there's instances of rape and murder much uh, against children and women abound in, in, in Burma. And there's pictures and videos of literally Buddhist monks killing people. And now I can come to any Buddhist and suddenly put them on the defensive and say, how could you believe in such a religion? And then you get a taste of what Muslims go through. So, but we don't hear so what, the same generalization about Buddhism. We don't use the Burmese crimes against the humanity to, to paint a brush of all Buddhists in this negative terroristic, you know, image. And you, you think that's unique to Islam or that's, that's more acute? I think I no, that's, that's very unique to, especially in modern day, that's very much used against Islam. And it goes back to colonial history. I'm not saying it's unique in every sense to Muslims. I think it is being used in this context. Now, yes, 70, 80 years ago, it was used against the Japanese. What, what was now it for it's you? Now used against the Muslims. What, what? Was, it, what was it for you? Like, apart, apart from you being raised in an Islamic tradition, like, was there something in particular about the... In what the, ways was I raised in an Islamic tradition? I'm asking, were you? Well, no, I mean, that's an assumption on your end. Okay, so, so your, your, your parents weren't very religious growing up. Well, my... You know, my my father is is religious. My my mother is somewhat as well, but you know, my step stepfather is not religious at all. I mean, like, I, and, what, what I'm trying to ask is, like, most most kids are the religion of whatever's in their house, right? Just because that's that's what's in their house. But I'm just asking, like, sure. As you got sure. old, as you got older, were there was there specific things about the about Islam that that. Uh, you know, as you matured, you said, "Yeah, I really, I really want to embrace uh, this aspect of it, or this. These are the things I feel really make me, uh, you know, make me a Muslim or make me want to be a Muslim." Like when, so, and I think, I think, yeah, there's there's an individual path that I took to becoming a Muslim, and I don't think that's necessarily true for everybody. And I, and do you mind talking about um, it a little bit? Like, sure, of course, I can, I can, but. So we we're over with the discussion of the because you asked if why a culture would accept Islam or what is the unique ideas of it. I guess we can talk about it somewhat in the personal aspect of it. But, yeah, yeah. So I'm just um, curious. You know, I, I understand. What I mean, saying. here's the thing. I come from a household where my family from the get go said, "You're not really allowed to call yourself a Muslim until you truly decide that you want to be a Muslim." And the notion of having doubt and going and searching and asking questions was very much a celebrated cornerstone of it. And so very, very, there's a good number of people within my extended family that don't have, you know, necessarily a strong faith. Um, they might still call themselves Muslim. I don't know. I don't ask questions like that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them may not feel like they're Muslim anymore and, you know, whatever. But the the, the idea was Islam has to be accepted. There is no notion, and and this goes back, and I think this goes back to anybody who reads the Quran and anybody who studies Islam. 
when you get to the core of the religion, you have to choose to be a Muslim. You cannot be forced into becoming a Muslim. Is there is and, there a certain ceremony like is is it like a bar mitzvah or bar mitzvah with like at a certain age, you're you're, you know, are you asked like do, do you want to? There are some cultures that have it. So, and this is again a cultural thing. Um, most Muslims, no. There are some there's some cultures that have some sort of ceremony for a girl when she comes of age. Um, that they have that ceremony similar to a quinceanera, um, but a little bit younger. There are some ceremonies. There's there's places like Turkey where a boy will have his uh, circumcision at you know at an older age, mm-hmm. and then that's technically his acceptance of Islam. But so you the, you, you didn't have to do anything special then. No. no. Okay. You are there's there's effectively only one requirement to becoming a Muslim. It's, it's in order to become Muslim, you just have to say the. You just have to honestly, and you know, with a whole heart, just have to say the, the shahada, the shahadat, or the the, the basically the the creed, that I believe that you know there is no god but God. And Muhammad is his last prophet, and and that, you know, once you say that, and you you know saying it, believing it, then you're a Muslim. There really is, and and in fact, you know, there's this is why one of the reasons why some people argue that Napoleon was a Muslim, because in one of his campaigns and when he was in Egypt, he said it with the Mufti and said, "I'm a Muslim," and then in, also in his later writings while he was in prison. Um, before he passed away, he, he repeated it again in one of his diaries. And so some people claim that he was uh, secretly a Muslim. Um, some people say he was doing it to gather the, the favors of the locals. But um, was it, to, it really was, is. Was it to gain like an alliance or something? Or you, to, Some people say it, the, the conversation in Egypt and his speech was more to to curry favors with the locals and, and, you know, establish French rule. Um, but you know, his, his writings and the diaries before he passed away while in, while in exile are, are a little bit more, um, indicative of, of just an acceptance of possibly Islam. So this was, so late, it doesn't t- this was late it in his life, like before he died or exactly. Okay. So I mean, it doesn't take, it doesn't take that much to become a Muslim. You just have to believe in Islam really and and you just have to say it and this this goes hand in hand with a lot of things in islam which is why it's also a religion that for some people it irks them and some people in you know including some muslims and they force cultural traditions on it that don't have to be there they don't have to exist so in my personal growth as i was growing up and i was you know for a good portion of my young adulthood i spent time going to churches, um, listening into sermons, uh, reading scriptures from various religions, and really kind of trying to immerse myself into understanding a little bit more. And ultimately, the, the moment I chose that, the moment I decided that, you know what, I want Islam as the path moving forward, was when I was reading the Quran, and it very explicitly said 
that any human being who is a good person and believes in God can go to heaven. Only God can decide who goes and doesn't go. It is no human being can judge someone else whether they go to heaven or not. There is no prerequisite in the same sense as other religions place on it. And there is no coercion in religion. And suddenly I said, you know what? A religion that tells me that there are many paths to enlightenment and doesn't force it and says this is just the best path. I like that idea. I like that concept. I like how it's presenting it. And that's that's when I started to really follow Islam. But even in those early days when I was starting to follow Islam, I had a lot of conflict with fellow Muslims in, you know, on campus in my college because they were coming at it from a different context. And so when, you know, there was a fellow Latin student who was slowly accepting Islam and he wanted to become Muslim and so some of uh, my, you know, fellow Pakistani and Indian uh, Muslim members were telling him that he needs to have a Muslim name. And I was like, what the hell is a Muslim name? What is what does that even mean? What is it just be, an Arab name doesn't make a Muslim name. You can have any name you want to be a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And so they were forcing these cultural elements onto this person's religious conversion that was that just didn't jive with me. Do do mo- um, would you say most people convert to Islam after reading the Quran, or is it is it no easy? no definitely not no so there it's it, the, the it's, Quran is a the Quran is has many layers and one of the layers is it's a very much like a legal text it's not a textbook this is not a you know there's stories in there there's allegories in there um, there's ways that it keeps repeating itself in order to to teach the same lessons. Um, but from different perspectives. So the same stories may keep popping up because it's showing you a different element of it each time. It's not a reading that's done easily or that, you know, you sit down overnight and just are like, oh, okay, I'm just going to read the Quran today. Um, no, you, you read it, you study it, you live with it, you let you, you let it gestate over a long period of time. It doesn't... It's, so so it's, it's, it's a lot like Talmud then for, for or Hebrew school for a Jewish tradition, same kind of thing. Sure. Sure, it's it's not something you need context. You need to know the stories behind it. You need to know what what's going on. Um, and because and because of that, a lot of people, including Muslims, don't necessarily read the Quran. And so then they rely on popular notions of other traditions. So, for example, Islam doesn't have an issue with evolution. In fact, it supports it. It doesn't have an issue with scientific research. And in fact, you know, studying and researching is considered a form of prayer. So when, you know, when, when Muslims, they don't believe in the same notions that it, it doesn't even necessarily mean that Adam came after before Eve. Uh, you know, we know that the mitochondrial Eve was long before the first human male. And so, you know, Islam doesn't really have the same notion that Adam and Eve were just plopped down from the sky onto the earth and their kids, you know, intermarried. There were other humans. So what, Adam was just the first prophet. So Adam, where do you think yeah. where do you think the misconceptions start? Then is it from not is it from not reading the Quran as the source material? Is it well? There's people. There are people who there's detractors and there's people who abuse and opportunistic abusers. Let's put it that way. And so the detractors will go and take quotes out of context. Which, as you and I know, you know, when, when you're writing or doing any kind of 
um, research projects is very easy. You just you find the quote that you need and you remove the context and you can make a person say anything that you want them to say. And the same goes with opportunistic abusers of it. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a quote or there's a part of the Quran where um, the, the, the religious or the Muslims are not being allowed to enter the holy mosque to pray. And the, the Quran comes down with the scripture and says that, you know, if, if you are being attacked and they're coming to kill you, and they're stopping you from being able to to practice your religion, then you have the right to defend yourself and kill and strike the unbelievers. But, you know, if you can forgive people and not kill anybody, God loves those who, you know, are patient and forgiving and kind. And suddenly this is, you know, this is taken out of context and say, well, it says very clearly strike the unbelievers and kill them. So yeah, they leave out, they leave out the the being patient and being. Well, they also leave out the the the, the prerequisites. If he, if someone's coming, I mean, if someone's coming to attack you and kill you, yes, you have every right to turn around and kill them as a as a form of defense. But it's not okay to, and it says, you know, in the Quran, it says, keep your agreements with those with the unbelievers even if someone is an enemy of god but you have an agreement and a contract with them you have to keep it now so then you ask why were the malaysians or the indonesians interested in islam because these people were coming these muslim traders were coming but they were very steadfast in their business dealings they were honest and they were being steadfast and they were keeping their contracts and they said they like that religion. They said, you know what, these guys have a good idea. So the religion of the sword, as a lot of the, the you know, Islamophobic people like to say, spread to the majority of Muslims sans sword and through business and trade agreements. When did, when did Islam come to Malaysia? Roughly when? Uh, I, you know, I want to say a thousand years ago. Okay. During so, the Islamic trades and the business trades that happened, so you how, can see a similar thing so happen much, in Mexico context, right now. How much so context let me, let me, is the right right amount of context then? Like, is it so? Well, but that's the thing, though. And and you know, let me give you an example with the Mexicans as well. Is there's now villages in Mexico that are becoming Muslim and very new, new kind of entrance into Islam. Okay. And when they interview them, and there's you know YouTube videos about it. One of the things that attracted them most was the fact that they're less violent and they don't drink alcohol. And the men who had become Muslim, the families where the man had become Muslim and he, you know, he was no longer drinking and he was no longer, you know, and into certain, uh, he was no longer doing drugs. And suddenly the, 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 and the family cohesion was being kept. And so in some villages that were very hard hit, they, they, they saw this as this big, this, this new change and they accepted it. Now I have to put that into context. That doesn't mean that I, in any shape or form, think that Christianity or Catholic Christianity leads these people to become violent or drunkards or, you know, whatever. I don't think there is any element of that. And it's also not an indictment of the Muslim Mexican culture. But I think when people see that things are not going the way that they want, they will make the change based on whatever they think will help them. And so for some people, 2,000 years ago, 
Christianity was the answer. For some people, a hundred years ago, Christianity was the answer. For some people, coming out of a theocratic government, or like let's say from a Muslim theocracy that oppresses people under the banner of Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, or, or even sometimes atheism, will be considered the right answer. Because when people are put under pressure from horrible things that have happened, they will find the right answer to make them be able to have a better and normal and healthier life. And so that goes deep to the, to the issue of why do most people choose it. When you read it and study it, it has so many wonderful things. I think it is hard to deny that it's a beautiful religion. I, I, think, it, I think it has a lot to do with, its, with Islam's reputation for discipline and, uh, and intellectual... Uh, intellectual richness um, sure it could be you know sort of holding yourself more to a higher standard holding yourself accountable for sure it could be up, uprighteous could be. behavior that's that's you know attractive to a lot of people I mean really I I'm I'm a complete novice and really my only knowledge of of Islam would have to be you know sort of obliquely from you know civil rights education and knowing how Malcolm X and so many other leaders of the of of black civil rights found Islam attractive, you know. So that's sort of right. my, you know, my sort of public education knowledge of Islam. Sure, like, that's what it, that's what it amounts to. And and there is an element of and and right. And so then you know, going back to my personal view of, of why I, I I chose Islam as the path that I wanted to take is that I, I sensed that the God of the Old Testament was very much the angry father who was quick to, to punish and, you know, very, very wrathful. And then the, the God presented in, in Christianity was this very mothering, unconditional love God. And, and but in Islam, God is is a friend is, is someone who is uh is a guide is 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 a is a helper it's a very different set of it's a very different relationship and a friend and a teacher and a right exactly i i can, so i think i can say from my from my own you know exposure to religious studies the way i approached things was not necessarily with the intention of subscribing to any one, but that yeah. my, the way I always looked at things wa was, okay, the fact that it's written down and it's studied and it's, it's, it's part of human history, that, that there's, some, there's some kernel of worth and useful information no matter what the tradition is, right? And there's a reason that the tradition has been perpetuated because, like you said, some people found it helpful somehow so if you're going to get anything out of religious studies it would be to just find what's useful out of every tradition right so sure there's a there's a way to look at it that way so my my approach was always okay even if i don't understand everything that's being said there's something of value here so pay pay enough attention in such a way that you can get get something out of it right you don't necessarily have to well take, and so that's yeah and th well there's 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 some truth to that and i think 
so long as you're moving forward, I would add that caveat to it. So if you assume that all roads lead to Rome, and this is this is kind of the approach that I'm taking, that you know the the road of the of the Buddhists and the Christian and the Muslim and the is is eventually towards enlightenment. And as long as you're moving forward towards enlightenment, then sure, you can take elements of these different paths and to, to, to set your own path. That's also possible. But it's also important to, to recognize that um, for the vast majority of people, if they're not going to devote the same level of energy and effort, um, it could just be that you get lost in the woods without without spending that time to research and really get to know the 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 path that you want to set forward so there is a bit of um there's a bit of uh of an issue with modern day modern day religious thinking and this goes to the to the letter that you sent me the the conversation with uh, mr rizvi who is a who's an atheist Muslim, I think he called himself, uh, and this idea that, well, culturally we have to make Islam acceptable for everybody, but the religion could use work or the religion has problems. And I, you know, I have to reject that notion because cultural Islam doesn't exist. There is there's culture... Pakistani culture, um, which may be deeply influenced by certain Islamic beliefs, but is ultimately a culture. Wait, I, there's I, Sa- Saudi culture. There's you know Malay culture. There's two hundred. You know, there's millions of of Chinese Muslims who are in internment camps. The Uyghurs who who have their culture and it's being actively suppressed, and they're in the middle of a genocide. So, so wait. So what? Um, what are you defining as culture? I, I'm not understanding. So there's cultural practices and beliefs, how people dress, what is their ceremony for having a wedding, what is, um, you know, what, how do they name their kids, is there any traditional way, that what foods they eat, these are all very much culture. But religion, and this, is, and this really kind of strikes at the heart of the conversation that we're having, we have to define religion separate from ideology. So an ideology is ultimately something that we as men have created, whether collectively or individually. Well, wait, before, based wait, on wait, hold on a sec. Before you make a distinction between religion and ideology, first make the distinction between culture and and religion. I'm not, I don't religion know. is a set of rules, is a path set for spiritual growth and enlightenment. Culture is a set of practices that a culture has agreed upon and practices and traditions that it maintains. So what, what what makes you say that there's no such thing as a cultural Islam? There's only a religious Islam? Is that... Because it, a cultural Islam is... It, it, what would be a cultural Islam? A Pakistani Islam? An Indian Islam? An Iranian Islam? A Turkish Islam? A Saudi Islam? Which, which culture gets to define what is Islam? Which culture gets to, to set in place that, oh, oh, this is what Islamic culture is. Well, then, and this th- goes back to... Th- wouldn't all of those fall under the, the colors of Islam then? Like, why can't all of those be... What is the colors of Islam? Because the thing is that if, if you're from Iran, your wedding will most likely look very similar. But if you're a Zoroastrian 
it's still going to be the same wedding. You're still going to have to go get the location, have the ceremony with the with the people shaving uh, sugar over your head. You might have the similar approaches to. There's so many little elements to it that are cultural. There's doesn't matter if you're a Christian Iranian. It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish Iranian. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist Iranian. Chances are you're going to have a lot of cultural elements in your wedding that are going to be very similar. So you're but, you're saying just on a, on a on an intellectual level, like there's there's no sensible way to take all those variations into account and still call it cultural, precisely because they're all different. I think if I was a if I was a Christian Iranian or Jewish Iranian or Zoroastrian Iranian, I would be pretty pissed if people suddenly started to use Iranian culture as Islamic culture. Okay. Because Iranian culture is made up of the thousands of other culture, or not thousands, that's right. It's of the 52, 53 ethnic ethnicities that are there and have their various cultural practices and also the thousands of years that have influenced it. So I would be very angry as a Zoroastrian in Iran saying, you know, that's that's not Islamic culture. That's just Iranian culture. I, you know, it, the, the Turks may have a circumcision for older men but or kids, but you know what? I'm quite happy that circumcision happens at, a, at infancy for most Muslim boys because, you know, God knows how traumatic that's going to be. So, so that that's a, I, that's a tradition in Islam as well. To have circumcision, yeah, yeah, that's the same as the Jews okay. and Seventh Day Adventist Christians, as, as a matter of fact. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's it, it's the Christians are the exception to this Abrahamic rule, and it's not even all Christians. It's the it's uh, some sects of Christianity. Fall with the fall of the same rules as as other Abrahamic religions. So, so, it's, uh, it's, so you you think the 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 variation across different countries' practice of Islam is so varied that it's impossible to call it a unified cultural practice? Yes. Okay. There is a religious aspect. There's a religious practice. Sure, that's there. Okay. But then there's the cultural practice, and, that, and that's the same across everything. So that's that's where you you feel that's more defining. Let's put it that way. Imagine imagine if a thousand years from now they say throwing up fireworks during the on a, in the summer during the Independence Day is a Christian culture. You know, there's going to be a lot of people that are pissed. They're like, that has nothing to do with Christianity. Oh, okay, I, I see what you're saying. See, it we we have to distinguish that there is cultural elements, cultural practices. For example, the veil. Um, you know, thousands of years before Islam even stepped foot in in Saudi Arabia, women, especially those of the upper class, had to wear headscarves and wear veils. Uh, but the Quran says, "Dress with modesty." The Quran doesn't have the specific, you know, oh, you have to wear a black covering from head to toe. It's not in the Quran. Okay, so it was just happenstance that because people wore headscarves, and so there wasn't a specific prescription, it must be a headscarf. It was just wear clothes when you're outside. And so since people were wearing headscarves... Dress with modesty and respect. And this is universal for men and women. And 
culturally, I'm, you know, there's going to be someone who's going to be pissed at me for saying that uh, because their culture brought them up to believe that if they show a strand of hair as a woman, they're going to be hung from it in hell. But that doesn't have any bearing whatsoever in religious scripture or text. So that is a cultural imposition. Okay. So you, you so you think there's a there is a in the in the Venn diagram of Islamic practice, there is a circle that is more uh, more abstract and less less prescriptive. Well, yeah. Okay. And th- and that's more properly described as Islamic. Well, yeah, because, well, I mean, now we're getting into the discussion of Islamic jurisprudence. Islamic jurisprudence is a very, very long discussion about what what the Quran specifically prescribes and what what they call sahih hadith, or like words of the Prophet that are accepted universally, which are only about like 200 or so that everybody accepts as accurate from the Prophet. So would, but there's, would, would you say then, is that, is, that, is that the heart of the matter, that that... That's what you think the nature of the misconception is about Islam? No, no. Because the Quran very, very specifically, very specifically states, for example, in Surah, Surah Talaq and other places, it states that in order for a person to make a decision or enter into a contract, they have to be a consenting adult. It doesn't, and this is one of the reasons why in Islam slavery is not really allowed. Um, if you had slaves, you pretty much every element of it prescribed that you free them. The notion of slavery was not allowed. Or the same reason why, as a person entering into marriage contract, you had to be a consenting person of mature mind and body. You couldn't, you know, child marriages was, are not allowed. And so the idea that that suddenly, like, oh, child marriages are okay, which is something that both detractors of Islam constantly like to use, and also horrible perpetrators in, in some Islamic countries like to use as well and abuse, is using or saying, for example, oh, the Prophet married a young, you know, a young girl. And that comes from one singular source, where there's multiple sources at the same time, from the same time, who stay different dates of Aisha, who is the final wife of the Prophet's age. And in one source, which actually gets a bunch of other dates wrong as well in terms of the dates of battles, Aisha's age is listed as, as nine years old when she enters the Prophet's house. That there's so many other sources, historical sources and writers at the time, and you know the Prophet's life was vastly recorded by a bunch of people that were living with him at the same time. And there's, it's impossible for her to be younger than 15, which by most standards of the day was pretty much a mature woman. Okay, uh, so in general, you just you think you think there the misconception has something to do with over particularizing it. When in fact, no, it's not over particularizing it. It's using people use for confirmation bias that will find what they need to make confirmation bias. The same goes for the detractors of any religion. Well, like I said, yeah, but that's what Buddhism I'm saying. Buddhism has yeah, all just, these wonderful things to talk about. The Buddha has wonderful things to talk about, but I can focus only on the the Myanmar terrorists or the, the genocidal maniac uh, monks 
or I can, you know, Christianity and, and the writings of Prophet Jesus are, are gorgeous and beautiful at times. And, you know, I can go and take some of the things out of context from various books of uh, the New Testament or the Old Testament and, you know, try to make the, the, the 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 religion of Christianity or Judaism into these violent religions. Yeah, so that yes, I well, the song of songs, and really make you know something terrible for them. Yeah, well, that, that's what I'm saying. Just well, what we were talking about earlier that there, you said there's a lot of decontextualization that happens, you know. So, sure. So exactly. that that that's all I'm suggesting. I'm I'm just saying for 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 summarizing purposes, the na the nature of the of the misconception. I mean, correct me if I'm if I'm not stating this properly, but in your view, the the nature of the misconception about Islam has to do with, with when I say over particularizing, that's what I really mean. I mean decontextualizing or looking with much too much scrutiny at at a particular sentence, rather than what you know would be the more productive approach of, you know, taking a step back, seeing the, the that sentence within the context of the paragraph and the page, and the chapter that it's in. You know, sure. So, sure. It, what what I'm suggesting is your. If you had to summarize the the misconception about Islam, it's that it's, it's actually more. It's it's less prescriptive than people would ha would normally believe, right? Well, it's very prescriptive in some elements, and this is this is why I said there's right. Nothing, there's a lot I'm, of layers to it. Yeah, so it's, I'm it's, not. I'm just trying to get in the ballpark of what's. Of, of what the misconception is. I'm not trying to, to lay out the contours of the misconception with, you know, well, but no, and I, I, absolute so I, precision. I have to, out of being accurate, I would have to reject that, that it's, that it's, uh, it's, there is elements of, if, if you read the, the, the Quran or, or et cetera, there's parts of it that are vague on purpose and there's parts of it that are specific on purpose. Okay. So then, and then decontextualization then is is the is the decontextualization. But no, I think again, and this is why I I think that this goes back to a much different cultural battle. This has less to do the conflicts and the people and the problems that, and the issues that they have with Islam are a lot more culturally based, and they're based on the remnants of the colonial era and this notion of the savage other. They go back to this idea that, you know, everything about the Prophet Muhammad was a problem and is considered he is the ultimate evil character that plays into the this, you know, opera buffa of Western ideology. So <laughs> but that when that that would be a crime of decontextualization, right? Because there's more context that rather than to just say, oh, he's a well, but it did, no, it's not just decontextualization. So. Because the prophet's first wife was much older than him, and because he was um, he was very much a businessman, and because he you know the Quran very specifically gave uh, property rights and you know a lot of other um, the right to divorce and the right to other things to women, because Islam gave these the Quran and you know all the prophets teaching kind of gave these rights to women. Back in the day, a thousand years ago. Muhammad was seen as this radical, was, you know, the image that they created of him was this radical uh, Satanist 
who was trying to radicalize the Christ, women of Christendom to, to fight against their husbands and rise up and, and commit a revolt. He was used, politically speaking, at one point he was too much of a feminist, and today he's the anti-feminist. Um, it's not just decontextualization, it's, it's actually very much using Islam or whatever it's teaching in the context of their evil. So finding whatever confirmation bias that you need, whatever you need to prove that whatever Muslims are believing or their prophet is the opposite of who you are, what you believe in. So was it was it the Crusades? Was it a war? Like what was going on? Think about think about the U.S. We needed an enemy. Twenty years ago, every villain in Bond movie was Russian. Every you know every, every the the Mighty Ducks had to beat the Russian. Hockey team. <laughs> okay. You know that that's but, we need an enemy. But that's because we were we were I mean fighting quote unquote the Cold War, right? So sure, if, we're we're if, fighting if, the commies. So now so now if if that's, we need if that's the what, Soviet Union fell and we need an enemy and the big boogeyman that we can come up with is you know some poor brown people in the Middle East and we need to contextualize the you know justify in our heads why it's okay for us to go and set up bases in their countries kill and rape and maim their 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 people and so that that's what i'm asking steal their resources cold war is to russians as blank is to the beginning of islam so like what what was the historical event going on that uh well i mean no modern day notion of islam like what what was the thing making Muslims the scapegoat? What was the? I mean, they were they were blocking trade with the East. Can I tell you? So they were, they were not willing to kowtow to 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 Western, you know, imperialism. Okay, so so there were there were villagers on the on the trade routes to to, you know. Asia at large. Well, no, they wanted taxes. I mean, the Persians. The Persians were constant conflict with the Byzantines because the Byzantines wanted free trade with the East East uh, Asia. So this is this is Silk Road politics, and Silk Road part politi- of it. That's I think that's one layer of it. There's a lot of layers here. One layer is Silk Road politics. Sure. Well, that, that, so that's what I'm saying. Like because of Silk Road politics, the the powers that be at the time, who was like you know. Damn it! We want more trade along the Silk Road, and and these freaking Muslims are getting in the way, with these Muslim villagers or whatever. Like if they would just yeah, get... these armies, sure. Right. So so well, and then and then the reason, problem someone, was it wasn't so for if, that if, reason. Some politician goes, you know, if like these Muslim villagers, they're they're low born, uneducated, beastly creatures, and they ought to be destroyed, and then then we'd have an easier trade along the Silk Road. Well, no, I mean, the issue was also that the Muslims were defeating them. Okay. I mean, it's it, there's a reason why in our in our racist diatribes of various things, we look at the, so the Native the, Americans the, was, as, the, as yeah. the noble savage. Where does this notion of the noble savage come from? It's because the Native Americans couldn't resist our military. So they're the noble savage. They're peaceful. We killed them and we committed genocide against them, but they're noble. Well, they were they were fighting colonizers also. So by the same, well, had they, but we don't see the Aztecs as noble savages. 
we see the poor Hopi people as noble savages because they didn't they didn't resist our military. I mean, they did, but it wasn't as effective as the as the Aztecs. Or okay, the, so they, they so, as, they, so they couldn't outright kill the Muslims on, along the Silk Road. So they put up some amount of resistance. So then it was the you know Western inferiority complex. This is like, oh damn. We're getting our asses kicked, sure. even though we have the exactly. superior or in, you know, in military the words of, it is. In the words of George Carlin, if I can borrow phrases from you know the famous atheist who I very much admire his political views, you know, part of the issue is, has always been the bigger dick foreign policy. <laughs> if they have bigger dicks, we go after them and we bomb them and we, you know, we try to demonize them as much as we can. And this has been... This has been a steady theme for for centuries, uh, but the the issue is. Uh, so, uh, other than Muhammad, who are the important uh, Muslim figures early on who were putting up resistance? Like for, for well, there's religiously or, or or like in specific cultures. Whatever, like if 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 that's what we if that's what you say is historically going on, like the politicians of the day wanted easier trade along the Silk Road. But they kept encountering resistance from, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. There's, think about uh, there, if you go on YouTube, there is, and and you look for. Uh, I'm just curious about like on, who, who's putting up the fight. Like, who are the famous people putting up the okay, fight? Okay, like like think of Salahuddin, the okay. famous Muslim general. Okay. You know, the, if if you go on YouTube, there's one historical website who will look at him purely from a historical context and will say, oh, he's a brilliant tactician who took over Jerusalem and who defeated the Christians. If you look at it from another video is with he, someone with Is that the, what he's known for? Is he the first to take over Jerusalem? I don't know if he's I don't know if specifically it was the first after, uh, perhaps. But he definitely defeated the Christians out of Jerusalem and he was a uh, um, but he was known also at the same time uh, to unlike the crusaders at the time to give basically safe harbor and passage to anybody of any religion and for them to continue to practice the religion so he was so when you look at the historical context of it specifically he's not really demonized by historians but then you suddenly have this these people who are coming from more christian kind of centric background who are saying oh well he was he was just lucky he just got lucky in a specific fight and he's actually just as savage and he was just as bad as other muslims so so he's an early liberal and progressive well i mean he was was a brilliant military tactician he was a brilliant military tactician the same the same thing happens with you know mehmed the, the the second i believe who took over or Mehmed I, who took over Istanbul or Constantinople, um, or, you know, who... who and the, this is all happening uh, around year 800, 1000, somewhere around there? No, these are these are much after. Okay. Um, I mean, sure, but so, so I don't know what Constantinople exactly fell, but because Constantinople was the last Roman outpost, really, it was the last Roman city, He's always going to be vilified as this brutal savage who took over. Um, but the truth is that because no, because no one wants to suggest the idea that the Romans were were incompetent or impotent, so they have sure okay. And the truth is that, and the truth is that there's a lot of other whitewashing that happens afterwards because of how Muslims are like we are you know, now in the, in this kind of like 
chess game, the the Jews are used as pawns in some ways. So now suddenly it's Judeo-Christian. Suddenly the Christians are very comfortable with being associated with Jews, and suddenly they want to apologize for the for the Inquisition killing three hundred thousand Jews because they they suddenly feel this pressure of saying, "Oh, the Muslims are so different." They don't want to mention that 500 Muslims were killed in Spain by the by the Inquisition. They don't want to mention that Christians and Jews were able to live peacefully in Spain under Muslim rule, and it was afterwards. And in fact, you well, know, the maybe it's maybe it's that then the Muslims are the better fighters, right? When it comes to war, right? Muslim- well, I don't know if it, it's sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. It's war. It's people. Things are not steady. Things are not. And then there's there's no generalization to be made, and also by and large, and I you know I, I read the correlates of war project. I studied 500 years of war, um, you know, when I was an undergrad, and I can tell you that there's really never been a pure religious war, war because of religion. It's always been economic issues, some. Someone trying to get a hold of a resource more than the other person. Someone trying to get some kind of political gain out of something. Right, and religion and was the, just a pretext for attacking. Religion was used for to, to gather the, the troops. Yeah. There was rally around the flag effect in modern day. Maybe in a hundred years people will use soccer teams as a way to get people to go into war. God knows. But I'm just saying that you know, never really was religion the cause of it. But... Religion was used to demonize, and so when we want to talk about why Muslims are here, but you think, but one, you think when we start when we started this conversation, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You think that Islam has undergone specific and acute persecution that that Judaism per se or Christianity has hasn't undergone. You think it's something like that that for some reason Islam has. Uh, no, no, no. I think it's gone. I, the Christians were persecuted fairly severely in their initial history, and so were the Jews. I mean, I'm not going to say that none of these people were persecuted. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying, like, there's something about you said there's something about how I'm saying people have perceived modern, Islam that has persisted more acutely than than say other persecutions. I, correct? Yeah, or? I think Western Western um, Western stereotyping, negative stereotyping. Of Islam has been has persisted more than other cultures, Western. So the the Western countries and their racist diatribes towards other cultures has been fairly acute against Muslims because of a lot of historical contexts. Um, okay, and, and I think let me let me is, let me ask you this as a maybe. Do you th- just as you were saying? You know, Islam has this stronger uh, religious practice, right? And doesn't necessarily have a cultural practice. Do you think that's the reason? Like, that the fact that it's... What do you mean it doesn't have a cultural practice? Well, you said, you had said earlier, there's no, in your view, there's no cultural Islam. There's only a religious Islam, right? Yeah, there's there's cultures that... No, I know that. that I know, but but like, Islam is more properly defined by its religious practice, not necessarily defined by its cultural practice. That's what you were saying, right? Sure. So, well, no, I'm yeah, sure. Go ahead. So what what I'm asking is, uh, so do you think that's given Islam a sort of a stronger, more robust religious identity, and that's why it might possibly it might be more possibly so it's more able to withstand, you know. 
uh, not withstand like it's fighting, but it, it's it endures more as itself. Like, would, is it fair to say that you know sure. the the Islamic pr- practice today still resembles, in, to a large degree, what it was when Muhammad first came up with the idea? <laughs> well, inspired well, by God, or ins- yeah. you know, and the word of God was written on the cross. But I, I'm but, saying, um, I'm saying, yeah, no, does, no. Does so, Islam so, yeah, today I think look Islam, like is, is Islam? Yeah, I think. I think because the continuity religiously for Muslims is a lot stronger, as you said, and because the, the, the holy text hasn't really changed for a thousand four hundred years, and it's been the same Quran, and it's been, you know, that, that continuity and that level of stability has given Islam a, set, a stronger foundation. Um, that allows it to to maintain its identity despite cultures and despite onslaughts. Because um, right, whereas I mean, because when you think about you know Christianity, there's Catholicism, there's Protestantism, there's Methodism, there's Baptism. You know, Ju- well, yeah, yeah Ju- Judaism has different different sects of its own. There's Orthodox Jew. There's you know, sure. There's there's Hasidic practice. There's and 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 to be clear, Islam has a lot of sects. Also, it's not like it's free from sects. No, but but it's fewer, right? There's there's fewer. There's, well, there's there's, less, there's fewer. There's less. And in terms of diversification, yeah. in in terms of practice, in that way, right? Exactly. The practice, the 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 core tenets and beliefs are more, um, more or stronger. So I should say they're they're more unified. So yeah, you're right. There is a there's less discussion in terms of the core tenets of it. But there is there is definitely sex. I mean, um, most most Muslims actively reject and see Wahhabism as a as a fairly um, negative um, recent insurgence into Islam. What what is Wahhabism? I'm not remind me. Al Wahhab is a is a guy who was a religious leader. Right around the time that the Al Saud family kind of takes over, or right a little bit before, um, when the Al Saud kind of uses the British mandate to take and make the Saudi Arabia the peninsula, and his views are um, are seen as as uh, the way he practiced religion and his views are are seen as fairly um, negative, I should say. Most Muslims reject the teachings of the, the Wahhabism. I mean, the, the Wahhabi muftis are the ones who declared 20 years ago that if you kill three Shias, you're going to go to heaven. Um, you know, and they kind of, they've, the, the Sunni-Shia divide, which a lot of people talk about, doesn't really exist as much. Most Sunnis and Shias have lived in peace for for centuries, but... Um, the bigger divide really kind of came from Wahhabism trying to create division. So it's a more, uh, it's a it's it's a more extreme version of Sunnism, or well, I think they want to they want to present it that way, but I think even the Sunnis kind of reject it as as a, as really kind of a an extremist um, cult like that has taken a lot of. That has had the fortune of being supported and protected by the Al Saud family, so they're very powerful and they have a lot of resources. So they're, they're and so they're in favor of a, a, a caliphate or no? 
most of the most of the extremists, modern day extremists, Muslim extremists that we see are are Wahhabis. They're they're trained and they're 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 pushed by Wahhabism. I mean, like, re- re- remind me what the distinction between Sunni and Shia is. Sunnis and Shias divided in kind of the beginning of the, really after the, the death of the Prophet, there was a discussion on, on Khalifites and how the rulers of Islam are set up. And um, largely the, the Shias' tenants at the time, the, the Shias are the followers of the descendants of Muhammad. But the descendants of Muhammad were the the, the imams. Uh, the they they really kind of preached this notion of Islam, where you kind of um, go back and relook and rethink certain practices. They're the ones who kind of really pushed the idea of. Um, so, so Sunnis believe that there are, there are, there's a priesthood, and Shias no, be- no, no. believe that there's there's just prophets. No, no, no. Shias have a notion of. They have the descendants of the prophet, like saints, who okay. kind of kept the the certain religious uh, teachings alive. And Sunnis, or the word sunnat, it comes from they come from tradition. The Sunnis believe in the tradition of the prophet, so what the prophet was teaching. Okay, so, so I mean, so one there's, one is the people, and one is the practice. Um. Well, I, no, I mean that's, she, this, she this is overly the, simplistic. She, she is, there's really she is, let me let me put it this way. There is very little distinction when you really get down to the jurisprudence of it and the and the a lot of the aspects of the religion. Like, if a Shia enters into a mosque and there's a bunch of Sunnis praying, he will pray exactly as the Sunnis, because ultimately the Ummah has to be kept. A Sunni and Shia are meant to pray together. They're meant to they go to the same mosque. They they follow. They do the same thing for Ramadan. They they there's such minutia of differences in the practices that it's really not even you know it's there they're very minor jurisprudence different differences um in terms of uh fit or it's like small rules that they they have to follow okay. but that those differences are politicized and attacked recently more so than before by a lot of funding from Wahhabism and a lot of uh, indoctrination. So how and that's, how does how does Wahhabism d- distinguish itself from those small rules? Like it's just they're, they're Wah- Wahhabism actively paints anybody who doesn't follow these extreme views of 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 uh, um, Wahhab and his teachings. They kind of paint these people anybody else as a as a heretic. As someone who's actively destroying or going against Islam, so in the minds of the Wahhabis, a Shia is someone who is uh, is a heretic and should be killed because they they're and and really that's one of the big gripes. For example, you know, there's people in Saudi Arabia who say that my servant or my the nanny to my kids is my slave, so I have the right to rape her. And you know, there's there's all kinds of like these very weird um, things that they have brought in, and it it's not. And I don't even think the people in in Saudi Arabia, most of the Sunnis, accept what they're teaching. Most of the times I've spoken to to people from these countries, they're not really accepting these very extreme views. Is a is a good They've, is a good analog something like the you know the American 
a view with respect to the Constitution, like there are originalists that say, you know, we have to interpret the Constitution according to what the founders said versus like the Constitution is a living document and it should be interpreted for the times in which we live. That would be more of a distinction between Shias and Sunnis. Okay, so, so Shias in this case would be the, the Quran and Muhammad's teachings are to be interpreted and then Sunnis believe that, no, like what did, what did Muhammad say we should do? Exactly. Okay. That's, that's more of a distinction between Shias and Sunnis. And then Wahhabism... Wahhabism, Wahhabism is a very different beast. Wahhabism is very much a, um extremist, like, the, you know, everything, most things in these practices, the Wahhabis believe that they have to, um, they have to bring the purity back to the, to Islam. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're almost the same as, let's say, very extreme fanatic Puritan for fanatics. So on they the, go on, and they destroy on, on the statues so that, and they destroy. I'm so sorry. It'd be, it'd be so. They'd be like saying, not only do they believe what did Muhammad say we should do, but like we need to follow Muhammad's teachings to the letter, like literal interpretations. And there's no other. Yeah, and any any deviation from it is heresy. Okay. So for but and and not even no, it's not even Muhammad. Not, no, I should be clear. They they're not even necessarily following. Muhammad because it's the um, Quran. What? You know, they were so worried they were so worried that people are committing adultery by ad adultery by going to the Prophet's house and Mecca that they not only destroyed it, they the the house of Khadija, Muhammad's first wife, they destroyed it and then they turned it into a public toilet. To make sure that it's no longer seen as a place for people to commit a pilgrimage to or to like try to – because they, they were so afraid of people making idols of the Prophet Muhammad. They, they destroyed a lot of the shrines. They've, they've destroyed pretty much over, – over the course of the last three decades, the Wahhabis have destroyed 6,000 historical sites that date back to the Prophet's time. Okay, so and they're they're just they're they're more they're more strict like literal interpret you know they're they're interpreting the Quran more strictly than than Islam in general would have you. Well, no, I mean they're not even really following the Quran either. Hmm. I mean the Quran is very specific. You're not allowed to force people into a religion. Right. But I don't see ISIS and you know the Taliban exactly following that rule or practice. Right, but the, uh, but I mean they're getting, they're they're getting they're they're they are reading the Quran though. Right? It's not like they're reading a different. No, book. they're not. That's that's the big problem. Oh, okay. Most of these, most of the. Here's the thing. Here, if, where where, this, this where is, are they taking their instructions from? Is what I'm asking. They're taking their instructions from these muftis, these these uh, religious like leaders that basically just indoctrinate various people. And then this is an issue that most of the Muslim world has with Wahhabism. And, and they're very, they're currently very powerful. They have a lot of funding and they, they put a lot of money around the world and, and to, and they send their, their trainees to a lot of places. So, so it's not fair to say they're a, they're a kind of Sunni or a kind of Shia. They're really their own thing. I think so. I think it would be... 
and and I think most most people would would take that view. Okay. Because it's not even cultural. They're just. It's not even like I say. I can say, oh, they're just. You know, it's not like I can say, oh, they're taking Saudi culture and 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 um, exporting it. No, these there's a very distinct, almost a, a plan to. You know, there's there's a there's a, there's an agenda there because they they're very much. I mean, the whole notion of Sia shouldn't certainly divide and the thing is really kind of the divide and conquer mentality that we saw from before. I think they're, I think they're just an extremist group that has been given a lot of power and money because of just circumstance. So, but even so they're still recognized as, uh, Islamic or, or not. So they, they'll, call themselves Muslim and I think the enemies of Islam will a lot of the a lot of what you see of people making saying oh these are the horrible things that Muslims do a lot of times that kind of goes back to what the Wahhabis practice are okay so do you think this idea that a woman can't be alone by herself is you know idiotic but that you know that that was kind of you only saw it in Saudi Arabia. Are they are they credited then with with spreading the misconceptions of Islam? Then a lot of Muslims, I would say, yeah. I mean, the, even at one point, I think one of the Pakistani prime ministers said the worst thing to happen to Pakistan was Wahhabism. So, so what's given them such ep- efficacy? Because they're violent. Because they have a lot of money. Money. They have a lot of resources. I mean, part of the coming part from of the where, agreement. Where? So there, are, so there. Are so Lawrence Sunni? of Arabia and the British, the British com- uh, government basically told the Saud family that we'll allow you to have the, the the kingdom of Saudi Arabia if you kind of protect these people. They're very much a political, religious kind of extremist group that that has the full financial and political protection of the Saudi family. But what were what were they before that? Like bef- no, but nobody's just a small, oh. tiny. So, uh, so they had British group backing of extremists in the middle of the. Yeah, they have British backing. Why? Like, why did the British want to back them? The British policy and colonial policy has always been divide and conquer, create conflict internally, and then take control of people individually. And this has been seen in every single society that the British have had the horrible graces of touching. They create conflict. They go in places that historically were peaceful and they find ways of getting the minorities to fight each other and hate each other. So the, the Wahhabi as a group, their creation of British sort of wanting to create a different faction? Well, I don't know if the British created, created them, but they definitely got their... I mean, crea- they, they, created through funding, created through exactly poli- yeah. their political yeah. support, like exactly, and they've 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 gained their kind of that momentum. I mean, it's the same. There's a lot of, and some people say it's conspiracies, but we really kind of have enough evidence of it that ISIS was really a creation of the West. They got their weapons from the West. They got their training from the West. They got their, they, and they were created, I think, to kind of to kind of break up the Middle East and divide and conquer again. But, you know, the it comes back and bites you, you know. Same as the Taliban. The Taliban were funded and trained by the and what, what, U.S. government. what political power did they assert? Like, are, are, they, are they the ones in power in the Middle East? 
the Wahhabis. Yeah. Well, they're, they're the de facto religious authority of Saudi Arabia. Okay. So that's why Saudi Islam is so different from Islam anywhere else in the world. That's Again, that's not to say that the Saudis in Saudi Arabia believe it, but they're oppressed to such a strong degree that, you know... So because because they had, the Wahhabis had British support, is that why... And Saudi support. Okay. And so is that why the Wahhabis have had sort of more world exposure on the world stage? And so is that, would you say that's why, uh, if there are misconceptions about Islam, it's because... It's because they've sort of had the limelight longer. Mm, well, no, they just they they're people like, are, is, are is the people, are is the British, you know, are the British responsible for sort of because of their because of their fostering this group's creation to begin with, right? And because you know Britain is sort of was like the colonial power of the time that like. They're sort of it's it's sort of British interpretation and British narrative that sort of defines like oh these are these are the the rabble rousers and this is the enemy to be fought and so like that's that's what's perpetuating like oh this is what Islam is you know well, I'm sure that this is the notion of using this the Wahhabis as the enemy as the image of Islam is very beneficial to those trying to make enemies of us. That's well, what Wahhabis I'm, are. That's what yeah, I'm, exactly. That's no, what, I agree with you. Th- that's what I'm saying. So that, yeah, I agree with so, you. So, so okay. So they're they're very good. They're a very good target. So if if one if one was going to do further research on the origins of misconceptions about Islam, it would probably be you would you would put it at the the creation of the Wahhabis then, and the the. I would no. I would go back to colonial colonial times, and I would I would I would look at what. I mean, most of the most of the stereotypes, modern stereotypes that we have of Muslims, really stem from colonial colonial periods, um, where the British and French and everybody else was in Africa and the Middle East and India. Right, that's what I'm saying. So British, whatever the British agenda was at the time, colonial agenda, right? Yeah. They say, okay, you know, there's some political unity between Sunnis and Shias that are make creating an obstacle for our agenda you know it would be useful as if we had a a splinter group to sort of uh, distract and divert political attention from this from these these two sunni shia parties so let's sort of give military and money and 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 political backing to a a new group that we're going to call the wahhabis and then like then when when our when our agenda and our our priorities change and we go, oh, okay, yeah, that was useful for the time. We sort of stopped, uh, you know, we stopped a Shia election or we stopped a Sunni uh, leader from doing X, Y, Z. Oh, now we don't really need the Wahhabis anymore, so we'll discontinue our support. But now they've well, been... no, I mean, so long as so long as you create the divisions, you can rob a people blind indefinitely. Right. I mean, look at look at what the British did to India. Right. Um, the... But it, but it, it was a it was a Brit. All I'm saying is it was a British colonial agenda that created the Wahhabis. That once created, now now it's like oh okay. Well, the Wahhabis existed. The the sect existed before, but they definitely gave them the the avenue and the right tools to be able to expand and um, export their right. extremism. And since and since their creation, then they've sort of had a pot. You know. 
because they've because of the backing they were getting from colonial wealth right and colonial agenda they've sort of been able to shape the stereotypes about Islam that perpetuate to this day sure okay so what what year is that approximately the 40, I don't know the 40s um, well I mean Lawrence of Arabia happened when a hundred years ago early early 1900s um, it's right it's right around World War one right just before World War one because World War one's considered like the first you know sort of modern war right of the modern era so isn't isn't this just sort of so let me so we kind of, we've kind of gone over like about two for about two hours is it a way is it possible for us to kind of cut this conversation a little bit and then we'll revisit it yeah sure <laughs> we can we, uh, I have we can call this part one okay because I do need to I do need to take care of some issues okay no problem that kind of kind of lost lost track of time a little bit but um yeah I think I think that's a that's another interesting discussion but I think for the for the focus of it we can yeah we can say that the the colonial times really kind of kicked up this re reignited this use of Islam as the otherness and use of these images to kind of um, justify action in the Middle East. Okay. Afterwards. All right. I'll I'll buy it. Let's let's stop there. Well, but thank you, my friend. Theory. It's been uh, it's been really informative and instructive. Yeah, you know, thank you so much for the conversation. It was very good. Okay, and we'll... Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll pick it up soon, whenever you're free. Okay. All right, sounds good. All right, bye. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye.